On this edition of the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, we discuss America's attempts to repeatedly overthrow Iran and potentially draw us toward the brink of World War III. I'd like to remind listeners to subscribe to all of our mainstream and alternative social media, including YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, and to leave us a review and rating on iTunes. Subscribe to the weekly newsletter, The Geopolitical Intelligencer, which you can find on geopoliticsandempire.com. And please leave us a $1 or $2 tip via Patreon, PayPal, or Bitcoin. I hope you enjoy the show and send us your comments and feedback. We are speaking with human rights lawyer and author Dan Kovalik about his latest book, The Plot to Overthrow Iran, How the CIA and Deep State Have Conspired to Vilify Iran. He is also the author of The Plot to Scapegoat Russia and the upcoming The Plot to Control the World. Dan, your books seem to be doing very well, given there are numerous publications on U.S.-Iranian relations, which include everything from the declassified documents hosted on the National Security Archive to Stephen Kinzer's Zola Shah's Men. What motivated you to write on the subject of U.S. intervention in Iran? Well, I was very inspired by my trip to Iran, uh, which I took uh, in the summer of 2017. I was invited to speak at the University of Tehran, and uh, I took that opportunity, and I was uh, really impressed with the country, with the people who are famously hospitable, and, uh, you know, they certainly lived up to that reputation, and... uh, the country is just so beautiful and full of these ancient, you know, artifacts and antiquities and churches and mosques. Um, and, you know, when I was there, it made me think uh, that the reason these things were still there is because it was one of the few countries in the Middle East that hadn't been invaded by the U.S. yet, you know. And I, I really felt the need to do something, to write something opposing U.S., you know, military threats against Iran. And how do you view the United States? I've interviewed uh, Johan Galtung, and I like his quote where he says, I love the U.S. Republic, but I hate the U.S. Empire, and I sort of feel the same way. You know, I grew up in the U.S., like most children, admiring the founding principles of the U.S., uh, but, you know, later realizing it's really an empire. And so what's your view there? Yeah, well, just a little background on myself. I mean, I was raised in a very conservative household in the U.S., in Ohio, uh, to Roman Catholic parents. And uh, I was very patriotic and really believed in America and what it stood for. And uh, over the years, uh, after traveling around to Central America, South America, to places like Iran, I've taken a much dimmer view of, of, of the United States. I guess I would agree that I support the American Republic, though I don't know how much of the Republic is left. You know, there was a quote from the Democratic Party platform from 1906, I think it was, where they say, you know, uh, a, con- a country cannot exist half empire, half republic. And right now, I'd say we're like, you know, 75 percent empire, 25 percent republic. I think the empire has swollen 
uh, or uh, or has swallowed, I should say, the re- republic. And uh, I think Americans have not caught on to that fact, and in fact, are in great denial about that truth. We we I think we're the only empire that's ever existed on Earth that hasn't called itself an empire. Right. I mean, most empires proudly say we're an empire. Right. We're the British Empire, the Roman Empire, um, the Greek Empire, um, the U.S., which is a greater empire than any that have ever existed ever. You know, the Roman Empire had like 33 military bases around, you know, a very small space in truth, a small region. Um the British Empire had 36 military bases. The U.S. has a thousand military bases in the world in 138 countries. There's never been a bigger empire, and yet the American people will not recognize it as such. And I think that that is, you know, once if you if you can't even name the problem, if you can't even diagnose the problem, how can you cure it, right? So. Uh, I have a very dim view of the United States. I, I, you know, Trump's campaign slogan was make America great again. And my view is America's never been great. I mean, you know, my reading of history is, is that's never been great. And I think that's one of the biggest hindrances, as, as you say, that we don't call it a, a republic. Um, and, you know, Stephen Kinzer in his latest book says the empire began somewhere in 1898 with the Spanish-American War. Uh, and somewhere after World War II, uh, we, also, we, we also interviewed um, um, Jefferson Morley, who wrote his uh, latest book about James Angleton, the CIA head, and calling him one of the founding fathers of this notion of the deep state after World War II. So we have the American empire. Uh, somewhere around the turn of, the, of that century. And in your title, you mentioned the deep state. If you could also just give us your definition or, or view of this deep state. Yeah, so I think the deep state, however you you know categorize it, is this uh, bureaucracy that exists regardless of who is the elected official, right? So you may elect a new president, who may even want peace, may want better human rights, right? And the problem that president will confront is the fact that the folks in the CIA and the Defense Department and in the four military branches and in the Department of Homeland Security and in, you know, the Immigration uh, Department, all these bureaucratic institutions uh, have lifetime bureaucrats who have their own view of of where they want to go and what they want to do. And I think it, pro, it really prevents uh, a true democratic functioning. And I think, you know, Eisenhower started to put his finger on this, uh, you know, in his last uh, presidential address when he talked about the military-industrial complex. He was talking about an institution which the democratic levers could not control. 
And I think that that institution is, is, is greater and worse now than it was in the 50s. Okay, and getting now back more into Iran again, um, I taught a course on U.S. foreign policy at one of Mexico's top universities uh, some years ago, the Tecnológico de Monterrey, and I enjoyed uh, reading with students the declassified CIA papers um, on Operation Ajax from 1953, the 1953 overthrow of Iran. Uh, we also read the World Court uh verdict uh, from 1952, where Mosaddegh, who was an international lawyer, successfully defended himself. He won the case against Britain at the behest of British Petroleum on the nationalization of Iranian oil. Um, and as you describe in your book, the 1953 overthrow uh, by the USA was the CIA's first overthrow of a foreign government. And we have this climate today where the USA, Israel, Saudi Arabia, desperately wish to overthrow the current Iranian theocracy, yet in 1952 the USA was not happy either with an Iranian democracy. So it's quite amusing how the U.S. is neither content with a theocratic nor democratic Iran. No, wh what is it? What's the problem? What is it the USA wants? What is their geopolitical endgame? Well, I think that is, of course, the $64,000 question, you know. Um, I mean, first of all, we have to recognize the fact that the U.S. is not interested in, demo uh, in promoting democracy per se in the world. Uh, the U.S. It, it currently supports 73% of the world's uh, dictatorships, right? So we have to get that out of our heads that democracy is, is relevant to the U.S. at all in terms of international affairs. I mean, certainly... It'll support a democracy if that advances, you know, its geopolitical and economic interests, but it, it's agnostic about that. So, you know, in the case of Mossadegh, they didn't like him, even though he was democratic, because uh, he did nationalize uh, British Petroleum, uh, what became British Petroleum. Uh, it wasn't known uh, is that at that time. Um, and because... Uh, they couldn't settle on how much money he was to pay in compensation for that. But even beyond that, it was it was more important. I mean, Mosaddegh, by doing the nationalization, proved himself to be an unreliable um, partner in the world. You know, it didn't matter how much he was going to pay for the concession. In fact, at one point, Mosaddegh, uh, believing in the Americans having this kind of naive faith in the United States over Britain, who they knew were screwing them over, right? Offered for President Eisenhower to decide on his own what concession he was going to pay to the British for uh, the nationalization of the oil industry. But even that wasn't good enough because, again, I, he proved himself to be too nationalistic. Um, and the U.S., one wanted someone more compliant in Iran, and in the end, the U.S. decided, hey, we could muscle in and get our own concession, right? We're not going to fight for Brit the British concession of, of, of the Iranian oil industry. We want our share, and in the end, the U.S. got the lion's share of, of the Iranian oil industry. So that, that explains why we did what we did then. And so uh, then, of course... 
we supported the Shah and we installed the Shah, who, you know, who was a king. And he was not popular. And so the CIA helped create this brutal security institution known as the Sabak. And they taught the Sabak Nazi torture techniques. And they worked with the Sabak and to the bitter end to rule uh, Iran. And, and, you know, by, by 1978, Amnesty International concluded that Iran had the very worst human rights record on Earth. You know, which is something. And uh, the U.S. backed it, you know, into the bitter end, uh, which came in February 1979 when the Shah and his Sabak were finally overthrown. So then after that happened, uh, then what does the U.S. want? Well, first of all, in the final days of the Shah, Carter, Jimmy Carter, and I talk about this in the book, uh, maneuvered to make sure that the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, became the leader of Iran. He knew the Shah was going down. He was not popular. Uh, there were mass demonstrations. He was going to be overthrown. He had also been diagnosed with terminal cancer, so he was done. And at that point, uh, the U.S. decided they would rather a fundamentalist uh, leader like Khomeini uh, in lieu of you know, some sort of left-wing government, which could have been a possibility at the time. And so Carter, uh, in the final hours, made sure it was Khomeini who uh, came back from Paris and was put into power in Iran. Um, so the leftists would not take power. In 1983, uh, Reagan and in uh, the UK and Israel, all three actually shared information with Khomeini um, on leftists and communists and socialists living in Iran. Um, and, and he used that information to wipe out, you know, the last vestiges of the left in Iran. So the point being, um, you know, the U.S. will always pick a fundamentalist over a second, you know, progressive leftist socialist leader any time. And that's what happened, you know, uh, with Iran. But uh, even that's not good enough. Right. And so the problem still remains that the current government of Iran is still not compliant enough for the U.S. You know, it has a at least some sort of general anti-imperialist, uh, you know, philosophy. And it certainly has no uh no inkling to uh, be a pawn of the U.S. or of Israel or to advance either one of their interests. Uh, Iran is openly in favor of, you know, more Palestinian sovereignty. And it's, you know, obviously very dedicated to having, having national control of its industry, as Mossadegh did as well. So that's not, you know, uh, acceptable to the U.S. So the question is then, what would be acceptable? I mean, I think either some other, you know, leadership like the Shaw, who would be a lackey of the U.S., and the U.S. has, in fact, promoted the son of the Shaw, who lives in Paris, as a possible leader. So that's one possibility. The other, frankly, would be the Libya model, which would be no government at all. It'd be some sort of, you know, 
chaos um, and anarchy in which, you know, Iran would at least not present any opposition to the U.S. It wouldn't be able to protect its people or its oil industry against uh, exploitation. So that would be, frankly, like the worst case scenario for Iran would be the Libya type situation where you would have uh, just a state of anarchy um, and, and, and really in that situation, people would not thrive. And, um, you've mentioned, well, I also wanted to mention, uh, yeah, well, that, that's pretty outrageous that they, in recent years, seriously advocated the Shah's son coming back. I mean, that's kind of uh, comical. Um, and you mentioned the Savak. I just wanted to say that. That's one, the, that's one of the eras in your book that gave a little bit more insight for me with a little bit of new information because you, you, go, you go into detail about the Savak and it's quite, I mean, the, the details are qu quite hor horrific there. Um, and you mentioned uh, the, the naivety of Mosaddegh um, and his restraint against Washington. If you could just comment on this kind of trend or pattern with these world leaders who have been naive, you know, Mosaddegh, uh, Gaddafi in some ways, uh, Saddam Hussein, um, and Ho Chi Minh a little bit, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes, I don't know, some, some people say that Putin and Russia can tend to be naive, and you've wrote a book about uh, Russia and Putin. And are we seeing something that world leaders like Putin don't see or do they see something uh, we don't see? It seems that most of these targeted leaders are afraid to act against the Washington, Brussels, Saudi, Tel Aviv nexus. Well, I, look, I, I certainly think there is, is a large amount of fear uh, amongst any country who would go against, you know, those countries you mentioned only because they have you know, are much militarily more powerful than any other bloc in the world. But it's n not just fear. I mean, it is ideological. I think the U.S. has done an amazing job in promoting this idea, not just amongst its own people, but amongst peoples throughout the world, that somehow it is this unique beacon for democracy and freedom in the world. And I think that people like Mosaddegh, like Ho Chi Minh, like Putin at times, um, they did, and, and Gaddafi uh, in his final years, they were wooed by this idea. It's an incredibly powerful ideology. And I quote Harold Pinter a lot in my books. You know, he, he was a, a British writer and he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2005 and he gave the speech incredibly it was not a literary speech so much as a political speech and he talked about the almost magical power the US has to convince the world of its inherent goodness even when it is supporting a fascist coup in Chile or in Argentina or in Greece you know, you go down the line, and I think uh, it is a powerful, powerful uh, cultural and ideological force 
the interesting thing about President Trump is that he may be the catalyst for breaking, starting to break through that ideological, you know, magic trick because, you know, he he is now the the true ugly face of U.S. imperialism. He represents, you know, in a way that no president has for a long time, you know, the true nature of the U.S. Uh, in a republic such as it is, you know, racist, xenophobic, um, irrational, militaristic. And I think the world is seeing this. And it's like the mask has been ripped off. And uh, there's some good to that. I think that mask has to be ripped off. And, and a lot of us, like myself, we write books and articles to try to expose the true nature of U.S. empire. And I think finally the world is seeing its true nature, and it's not very pretty. And one of the topics of your book, you also write about the U.S. support for terrorism, which kind of boggles my mind. Uh, I've had students, U.S. American students, even in Mexico, um, who got really offended when I, in my courses, described U.S. support for terrorism and i've even had their parents uh, write letters and emails to my superiors uh complaining about it and you write about the u.s supporting the iranian mek terrorist organization we know the u.s has created al-qaeda they're openly supporting isis tulsi gabbard uh, recently spoke about this in congress we've had the former afghan president karzai speak to this the DIA former director Michael Flynn has revealed this. Vladimir Putin has, between the lines, uh, spoken about this at the UN. We've interviewed a MI6 spy Annie Michon, who was a whistleblower about this. And the list goes on. Um, and in fact, a recent military parade in Iran, um, there was a terrorist attack, I guess, some days ago or, or a week ago. Uh, 30 some Iranians were killed in the terror attack and Iran says that it was a terrorist organization supported by foreign powers including the US and Saudi Arabia who were uh, culpable of that. You know, I'm dumbfounded at how the US continues to openly get away with arming funding and draining ISIS and other terrorists in front of the whole world and yet everybody pretends like it's it's not happening. How is this possible and how can we help stop this? Yes, well, again, you point out this amazing feat that the U.S. has pulled off. It, Especially after 9-11, of course, it said, hey, we're going to fight this war on terror, right? In the end, it, it fought a war of terror. It knocked off states that opposed al-Qaeda, like Hussein's Iraq, like Gaddafi's Libya, like Assad's Syria, though they weren't successful there, but they tried. They'd like to knock off Iran. All those countries under those leaders I just mentioned were mortal enemies of al-Qaeda. And yet it was those countries the U.S. targeted after 9-11, not Saudi Arabia, despite the fact that 15 of the 19 terrorists who you know uh, flew planes into the World Trade Centers uh, were Saudis despite the fact that Bin Laden himself was a Saudi, despite the fact that as the 9-11 Commission concluded, Saudi Arabia 
uh, played a role in helping organize the 9-11 attacks. Instead, the U.S. has partnered with Saudi Arabia against the other countries opposed to al-Qaeda and like terrorist groups. And again, anyone who's honest will point this out. And at times, people surprisingly, people have. Vice President Joe Biden at one point admitted this. Hillary Clinton admitted this at one point. Donald Trump during his campaign for president would allude to these facts. It's not a secret. And yet people are not willing to embrace these facts and and grapple with the implications of them. You know, we just commemorated another 9-11 anniversary recently. Um, And on that date, September 11, 2018, a number of papers, including the LA Times, ran stories saying Al-Qaeda is now more powerful today than it was at 9-11-2001 when the attacks happened. I mean, it's an incredible statement. Minimally, what that means is that the $6 trillion or so the U.S. has spent after 9-11 allegedly to fight terror has been utterly futile and, and, and wasteful. That's the best you could say about it. The worst you could say is those $6 trillion were spent actually propping up terrorism throughout the world. And I believe the latter is true, and it's undeniably true. And if you're an American citizen and you, you grapple with this fact that we were, had this horrible terrorist attack on 9-11-2001, and that your hard-earned dollars then went to actually support the countries that were behind the 9-11 attacks in order to fight other countries who opposed al-Qaeda in the 9-11 attacks, including Iran, by the way, who helped the U.S. after 9-11 to fight al-Qaeda, to fight the Taliban in Afghanistan. If you were to come to that conclusion, and it's the only one conclusion you could come to if you were honest about the world, you would have to believe the truth, and that is that American foreign policy does not exist uh, to promote national security, meaning security of people like you and I, right, who are citizens of the U.S. Instead, it has another purpose. I would say that purpose is, of course, to promote Uh, economic penetration of the world uh, to benefit a very few very wealthy people and interests uh, in the U.S. But however you come to conclude what it is about, you have to conclude without question what it's not about. And it's not about protecting the homeland. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, the world is much less safe now than it was on 9-11, and that's after trillions of dollars the U.S. has spent allegedly fighting the war on terror. I mean, it's, it's an amazing, amazing fact. And again, it, it would make George Orwell blush, truthfully. So let's fast forward uh, a bit. In your book, you mention uh, the 2006 Israeli 
uh, war against Lebanon as an opening salvo uh, against Iran. You also discuss the proxy war against Yemen, which is also targeting Iran and Syria as well. We've interviewed uh, the former diplomat Jim Jatras, who discussed how you know Syria is really about uh, Ir Iran. So if we could talk just about the last decade or, or two of U.S. interference in Iran, we know the U.S. uses a sophisticated network of NGOs to nonviolently overthrow foreign governments through these so-called color revolutions, where they actually pick the colors. And I believe they failed miserably to overthrow Iran in 2009 with a green revolution. Could you speak to these uh, recent attempts? Yes. Well, we know from General Wesley Clark, uh, an American general who actually was the supreme commander of NATO for a while. He discovered and revealed that there was a plan hatched shortly after 9-11 to overthrow, I believe it was seven different countries uh, in the Middle East and, and Northern Africa, beginning with Iraq and ending with Iran. Iran was to be the jewel in the crown. And uh, the penultimate country was uh, Syria. They knew that the road to Iran was through Syria. They would have to uh, topple Assad in order to go uh, after Iran. Of course, the problem has been, from the point of view of the neocons who hatched this plan and they you know wrote about it in something called the project for the new american century the problem was that one the first country to be taken out iraq was not taken out so easily while it appeared easy at first because it was not hard to topple hussein the u.s i think did not count on you know the intense uh, uh, resistance to it after that toppling. But the other big problem the U.S. faced was it was not able to overthrow Assad, despite all of its efforts, including funding and backing, you know, terrorist groups in, in Afghanistan, in, in Syria, uh, like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, and in fact, as we know, Assad still remains, and he appears to be able to remain indefinitely and that has slowed the u.s down on its road to tehran um but i believe that the u.s still has its sights on remaking the middle east and and that will depend on its ability to overthrow the iranian government which is one of the few holdouts in the region um and so the u.s has now uh, sanctioned Iran with these terrible sanctions, which uh, is destroying, these sanctions are destroying the uh, uh, Iranian economy, preventing important medicines from reaching uh, the Iranian people. In fact, I read an interview with the head of the Jewish hospital in Tehran. And I want to point that out. There is a Jewish hospital in Tehran, which actually has received millions of dollars from the Iranian government. This is probably a fact that many people would be surprised by. And the head of that hospital has talked about the fact that Trump's new sanctions will kill children because they will not be able to get life-saving medicines 
including uh, chemotherapy medicines. And that is the goal. So the goal right now of the Trump administration is to try to economically strangle Iran as the U.S. strangled Iran during Mossadegh's time to overthrow him, as they, over, as they strangled the Chilean economy under Agenda, right? Nixon talked about making Chile's economy scream. That's exactly what they're doing to Iran right now. They're trying to topple the government by undermining the economy and by also supporting these terrorist groups like the MEK uh, group, which has killed over 17,000 Iranians uh, over the weekend. So the same weekend that this terrorist attack happened in Iran, Rudy Giuliani was at a conference uh, that was hosted by the MEK terrorists, Rudy Giuliani being the you know chief lawyer for Donald Trump, and he spoke openly at this conference in support of the MEK and in, in support of regime change. So we see that there is this concerted effort to overthrow the government of, of Iran, and, and we see you know various attacks happening. Uh, not just the attack over the weekend, but attacks uh, by, for example, Israel on Iranian targets within uh, Syria. We see, um, of course, the war in Yemen, uh, which, you know, while the Iranians are, are not that deeply involved in it, certainly um, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. Uh, and the UAE and Britain see the uh, war in Yemen, I think, wrongly as a proxy war against Iran. In the end, what it is, is a genocidal war against the Yemeni people. And the latest figures are that five million children will die in, in, in a man-made famine in Yemen because of this uh, conflict that the U.S. and Saudi Arabia in particular are waging against the Yemeni people. But all of this is, 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 seems directed at Iran somehow. And one of the ironies, of course, if you can call it that, is that you know, once the U.S. overthrew Saddam Hussein, you know, uh, Saddam was a Sunni uh, Muslim, and he... And, and other Sunni Muslims ruled Iraq for decades with U.S. support uh, over the Shiite majority of Iraq. So once the U.S. overthrew the Sunni government of Saddam Hussein, naturally the Shia uh, uh, majority took over Iraq. And naturally they aligned themselves with Shia Iran. But then, of course, the U.S. expressed this surprise and upset like, oh, now Iran has all this influence in the Middle East after we toppled Saddam Hussein. Well, of course, that was the case. So then the U.S. decided, oh, you know, we really need to do something about Iran because our uh, activities in Iraq just empowered Iran. So now we have to cut them back. And so I think we see much of what's been happening in the Middle East is a process of trying to isolate and undermine uh, Iranian influence in, in the region. 
in 2011, it seems a week, Russia and China threw Libya to the dogs, giving Gaddafi up, so to speak, uh, by not vetoing the UN 1973 resolution, which authorized the use of force uh, in Libya. And it seems times have, have changed. It's a different world uh, since then with, uh, you know, the last year, Russia revealing its new hypersonic uh, missiles and defense systems. And it seems they laid down the gauntlet with uh, Syria, where Russia has given serious military support uh, and the Chinese tacit support to, to Syria. Um, it seems like there's this red line in the sand now with the Russians and the Chinese in Syria, and perhaps even more, more so with Iran. Do you see things um, um, escalating? I mean, is that a red line in the sand for these, for Russia and China? Do you see a potential escalation if Iran is overthrown, a, a serious regional or, or global conflict, or will it would it just be like a war? You know, we go back to 1980, the 19, um, the first. What was it called? The, the, the really the first Gulf or Persian War between Iraq and Iran, where it was just uh, between the two of them. Do you see something serious coming of this? Yes. Well, I mean, I do think that uh, if the U.S. seriously intervened in Iran militarily, the risk of a, a third uh, world war would be very, very high. You mentioned Libya, and you mentioned that. You know, China and Russia abstained from the resolution in the Security Council to create a no-fly zone uh, over Libya. Of course, uh, the no-fly zone quickly turned into uh, regime change against Gaddafi and the murder of Gaddafi in October of 2011. What I understand happened was, one, that Putin uh, was very upset. He saw the videotape of Gaddafi being sodomized and murdered, and he was very upset by it, and, and that he did decide after that that it was a mistake to give uh, NATO the carte blanche to do what they did, and that he would not allow the same thing to happen to Assad in Syria. And so that's when he decided Russia would be involved in Syria to support uh, the government there against jihadists from taking over Syria. And of course, Russia has been very successful in doing that. Um, and I do believe that Russia is very clear that it will not allow further destabilization of the Middle East. And China is also of that mind. And so I do think that if the U.S. would go into Iran, one of the most stable governments in that area, and try to you know overthrow the government by force, it's very possible Russia would uh, respond and, and, and that the U.S. and Russia could be uh, you know, in, in a military conflict and possibly China too. Uh, you know, John Pilger is one of my fav favorite journalists and writers has talked about that even separate and apart from all this, the U S has its sights on China and, and because it sees China as its biggest rival in the world. And that it may have sights on militarily attacking China 
even separate and apart from all these conflicts in the Middle East. So I think, you know, we're in a very dangerous situation uh, that people need to be aware of and they need to resist. I mean, we need to fight this idea of, of, of war that our country seems so wedded to. And we need to stop the next war before it happens. Right. Pilger produced that great documentary, I believe, The Coming War on China. One of my final, some of my final questions. Do you see Russia, China and Iran coming together as a more tightly knit unit or axis and morphing into what one might call Halford McKinder's worst nightmare, a new Silk Road type of Eurasian superpower? I do see that, and I welcome it, to be honest. I, I, I'll be totally truthful. I have given up on the West. I, I think the West is bankrupt. Uh, and why? Because it is so wedded to unrestrained capitalism, you know. And I think that to have Russia, China, Iran, India, per, perhaps South Africa, Brazil, I hope, maybe, um, being a counterweight to the United States is very critical. I see the U.S. as the biggest threat to world peace. And it's not just me. There have been a couple polls worldwide which show that people throughout the world uh, in huge numbers see the U.S. as the biggest threat to peace in the world. And, and I think that's obvious. Um, and I think there needs to be a counterbalance like there was during the Cold War. I think a lot of us you know, didn't realize what we had with the existence of the Soviet Union, you know, as a check on the U.S. power. But we need that type of check again. And frankly, in order for humanity to survive. Any final thoughts on Iran, uh, regime change, U.S. empire, any or any other point that uh, you think we may have overlooked? You know, my main point would be this. Iran is a beautiful, ancient country. The people there are uh, very intellectual, very modern, very progressive in thought, you know. And a lot of people in Iran do not like the current theocratic government, as many of us on the left are not crazy about. But in the end, it's up to the Iranian people alone to decide what kind of government they're going to have. And I think the, for the West to continue to cling to the hubris that it can choose what type of government other countries will have is not just folly, but it's absolutely wrong and it's absolutely bad for the people that they claim to save. I think in the end, Iran will find its way. The people of Iran will progress and they'll develop in the way they want if left to their own devices. And we need to fight our own countries like the U.S. and Britain and Canada for the Iranian people's right to determine their own fate. And, I, you know, that is a very, uh, uh, a very uh, important right that it's enshrined in the UN Charter that all peoples have the right to choose their own government, uh, have the right to be sovereign, to control their own resources, and the U.S. has to be brought to heel to allow that to happen.
And could you tell us about your new book, which I, th I think it's your third book coming out in November called The Plot to Control the World? Yeah, so uh, thanks for asking about that. That is going to be a book focused on U.S. interference uh, throughout the world, especially since World War II in the elections and democratic processes of other countries. You know, in light of these claims against Russia allegedly interfering in the U.S. elections, and what I try to show in my book is that whatever is even alleged against Russia pales in comparison to what the U.S. has done, and not only meddling in or interfering in other countries' elections, but in actually destroying the democratic processes and the de democratic government's of many foreign countries. And that is another history that, that Americans need to really come to grips with. And how can people best follow you and your work? Well, you can buy my books. Uh, you can get it through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, many independent bookstores. And uh, I often write for Counterpunch as well. So look for me there. And you're also on Twitter. Yes. And I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Yes, indeed. Uh, until they terminate your account. <laughs> right, exactly. So follow me while you can. Uh, I know I will definitely pre-order your book on Amazon, um, the Kindle version, because it's hard to get books out here in Kazakhstan, physically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I believe it. And uh, everyone should go out and uh, purchase your previous books and pre-order the new one. Um, thanks for the work you do and the books that you continue to publish. Thank you. I really enjoyed the interview.